1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
0: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Children of the Night, and welcome. Well, Women in Horror Month is behind us, and another flash fiction contest is in the books. Thank you to everyone who participated, all of my begging and pleading paid off because it was the most participated in flash fiction contest we've had so far. We'll keep you posted on the results once they roll in. We've still got a fair bit of reading to do. If you missed your chance to submit to our Flash contest, don't fret. Tales to Terrify will be open once again for submissions in the relatively near future. I'll have more details in the coming weeks, but you can expect that portal to open next month. So there's no time like the present to get those rusty gears grinding. And that pretty much does it for housekeeping this week. I won't spend any more time getting between you and our terrors. So, take a deep breath. Let's dive in. Our first story of the evening comes to us from Arthur Davis. Arthur Davis is a management consultant who has been quoted in the New York Times and in Crane's New York Business, taught at the New School, and interviewed on New York TV News Channel 1. He has advised the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission, the Department of Homeland Security, Senator John McCain's investigating committee on boxing reform, and testified as an expert witness before the New York State Commission on Corruption in Boxing. He has been published in over 80 journals, a collection, nominated for a Pushcart Prize, received the 2018 Wrightwell Award for Excellence in Short Fiction, and, twice nominated received honorable mention in the Best American Mystery Stories 2017. You can find more about Arthur at talesofourtime.com. Children of the Night, join me for Arthur Davis's Dracula Had My Back, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: Dracula just stopped by. He looked sad, as if he had misplaced himself. You want something to drink? Peculiar question to ask a man who lived in darkness and whose only sustenance, I had read, was the lifeblood of mankind. No, but thanks, he said, with a thick accent of many Eastern European nations and centuries. It was the third time he'd stopped by my apartment since moving in over a month ago. He always stood in the doorway, as though he was used to not being welcomed. Dracula, a heavyset seven feet tall, took up so much space, while I, an old bent five foot eight, took up very little. You okay? There was regret in his eyes. He shrugged and shook his head. It's been that way since we met in the lobby of our building. He, with no friends and newcomer to this backwater community... I had been here five months and was relieved for every minute of it. I didn't need much from the world, but quiet and an unhurried pace. We both lived on the fifth floor. Only six apartments to a floor in the six-story, moderate building in a moderate part of our moderate city. I had never been in his apartment. Mine, a simple studio decorated with what I managed to salvage from a so far sketchy, much unrealized life. I wasn't in pain, and the few friends I had left were equally available by phone. My arthritis and biting migraines hadn't faded into a shaded obscurity because the spring in my internal clock was all too quickly ticking down to a fatal stop. And that seemed more relevant than any long-term discomfort. I got up and pulled another beer from my refrigerator, George. Not many people name their refrigerator. I know you think me strange. I'm not. At least, that's what I've been telling myself these 68 years as an amateur mind reader. Unfortunately, there's no money in it. A contradiction? No, not really. Because I don't know whose mind I'm reading when I'm inside it. So who can I charge? What would be my fee even if I knew? Would I walk up to a stranger and suggest that it may not be a good idea to strangle his girlfriend's jealous cat? If I were him, I would walk away, or punch me in the mouth, or demand to know how I knew who his girlfriend was. You can see the paradox of my only life skill. It looked like Dracula had something important on his mind. He was working his way to a decision. I've seen that expression on my own face, and on the face of others. Sometimes that kind of hesitation can last for days. Sometimes weeks or longer. Sometimes it lasts forever. What was he so uncertain about? The rest of his mind revealed itself to me in an unexpected blur of darkness, and I thought I could detect an odor, a smell. I had no idea what it was, where it was coming from, or what it meant but it was the first time since discovering my modest talent that I had made contact with more than a mind. Was it related to the questioning glares from the other residents in the building, and a few from neighbors I knew in nearby buildings? I decided not to believe what every local rag printed simply to grow their circulation. A body had been discovered, drained of blood it was reported, near an abandoned coal mine several miles outside of town, according to the newspaper I picked up yesterday. The article was layered with unfounded suspicions, finger-pointing and dark innuendos stoking the fears and curiosity of an already cynical public. I wasn't a curious person by nature. I learned early in life that being too curious can be costly. I was curious about my now ex-wife's late nights out with friends, I spoke out before learning the truth. She never forgave me. I never forgave me, too. The newspaper detailing the gruesome murders was open on my kitchen table, too far away for Dracula to notice. I'm leaving, moving out. Leaving? Landlord's already given me back my security deposit, Dracula said. I think he's glad to see me go. People usually are. I was surprised, but more disappointed. Friends are difficult to make at most times in life, especially at my age and in a relatively new community. I'm sorry to hear that. I thought you liked it around here. I do. It's me. It's my nature. I don't usually stay in one place for very long. It's always been that way. He said as though he were apologizing. I understand it. I was thinking of making an argument that would change his mind, maybe keep him around a little longer. But what kind of friend would that make me? Selfish at best. If he was of that nature, then whatever friendship we shared was rooted deeply enough for him to tell me without disappearing in the night without a word. Thinking back to when we first met, I was anxious to establish a link, and offered sports, politics, favorite foods, and most recent interesting experiences as possible topics we might have in common. Looking around my sparse studio, what could Dracula be moving out? In all these weeks I hadn't thought about what he had accumulated over many lifetimes. What furniture did he have to move out? Or was his apartment as bare as when he moved in? I'll miss your friendship, but if you have to move on, I wish you the best. A strange smile crept across his face. I wanted to believe he was as unsettled by his decision as I was. So we should celebrate your new adventure? To finding a new home and making new friends? I said. He looked smaller, less threatening than when we first met. That first time he seemed a hulking creature, barely able to mask what a neighbor had already warned the rest of the residents was a brooding malevolence. Maybe I never saw it, or wasn't threatened by it, considering what time I had left. Anything come to mind? I asked. Pizza? he said, moving away from the doorway and resting uneasily against the arm of a sofa I recently rescued from the street. I didn't know you ate pizza. Paul's Pizzeria? The best, I said. It was just after six in the evening, so hunger was pretty much going to happen. After my divorce, I felt I was beyond finding that last piece of the puzzle of life that made you whole. I had come to the conclusion there was something missing in my heart and that I was going to remain incomplete forever. You like pepperoni? Dracula nodded. That frozen glare, coarse complexion, an oversized, almost misshapen nose, a wide forehead and coils of coal black mane falling haphazardly over his shoulders, and eyes too unnatural to describe, and the ever present black cape draped over the breadth of his broad shoulders. It looked new, freshly cleaned and pressed, but I doubted it. There were inconsistencies about this person which were foolish to pursue. He meant no harm didn't present a threat, and if anyone out there had given his arrival a serious thought, they would have realized if he wanted to take a life, he wouldn't so obviously expose himself within a common community. For someone with an unsettling reputation, he seemed straightforward, though not much of a conversationalist. A regular guy with some odd twists and turns about his manner and lifestyle. Probably that was the only thing we really shared not being able to genuinely fit in anywhere. No one else in the building wanted to get in the elevator with him. Some were suspect. Most were suspicious. I heard some believed it would be their last ride. Couldn't imagine what his life, the past hundreds of years, were like, or how he came to this address. 333 East Dearborn once boasted tapestries and beautiful terrazzo lobby flooring and antique sconces in the lobby. That's all gone now, as was the character of the original neighborhood, changed over nine decades, sometimes for the better, more often for the worse. I wasn't sure what phase it was in now, only that it was what I could afford and close to where I worked. What I do for a living sometimes eludes me, mostly because I'm not sure what it is. But I get paid regularly, and no one talks to me there, and I talk to no one so my life is pretty simple, except for my friendship with Dracula. I ordered an extra-large pepperoni pizza, setting the box on my kitchen table and covering up the newspaper article beneath. We each paid and ate in silence. This was our first meal, and apparently our last meal as friends. Conversation was limited. He didn't seem to know anything about sports, local, or national politics, as I first tried to discuss when we met. It was only when I mentioned how unpredictable the weather had become in the last few years that he reacted at all. Unpredictable? That means? he asked, putting aside a half-eaten slice. I couldn't help but notice the size of his bite. I saw the movie Jaws many years ago. Everyone in the movie was going on about the bite radius of the great white shark. Dracula's bite radius was noticeably larger than his mouth. I wondered who down the centuries had noticed that, or who had gotten that close and lived to tell about it. His voice or tone had changed. My apartment was getting cooler, almost chill. And the odor was a smell and the smell was a scent deep and foul and cloying and impossible to ignore or inhale. It burned my throat, my lungs, and quickly set my senses afire. Across the small table covered with an open pizza box, I had never been this close to him. Finally, I realized why he was here, if reluctantly so. The remains of my slice slipped from my grasp. Before it landed with a resounding plop, His right hand reached out from under his cape and grasped my neck squarely. I started to ask why, then was strangely relieved that I might serve some actual purpose in life, even if it meant losing mine to sustain another. You would do that for a friend, wouldn't you? Obviously it would have to be a really special friend. Someone who had your back, as I wanted to believe Dracula would be after we first met. Dracula is a friend of mine, I was prepared to say to anyone who wanted to rob or threaten me in this dodgy neighborhood. They wouldn't know if I was joking or not, but they probably wouldn't want to find out. Now, right at this moment, I understand that I would have been wrong to believe that. Dracula probably didn't have my or anyone else's back. In the end, I was able to provide him with something to drink though it was a strange choice, you have to admit, mixing blood and pepperoni pizza.
2: That was Arthur Davis's Dracula Had My Back, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and the Cursed Inn podcast. He can be found on Twitter at
1: Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony.
2: Our second tale tonight comes from Timothy G. Huguenin. Timothy G. Huguenin is a hillbilly writer of the strange and spooky, hiding in the Allegheny Mountains of West Virginia. He is the author of the horror novels When the Watcher Shakes and Little One, as well as the weird horror novella Unknowing I Sink. His short fiction has appeared in various publications, including *Vasterian*. Dim Shores Presents Volume 2, and The Dread Machine. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting mountainhorror.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Timothy G. Huguenin's The Station Agent's Wife, 1927, first published in Hinnom Magazine, June 2018.
4: It had been six months in the new house, but Anna Sullivan still marveled at the beautiful red brick as she bounced little William on her shoulder. She pressed a palm against its roughness and shivered, remembering the thin, newspaper lined walls of the shack she had grown up in, how those strips of paper often came loose with the frigid drafts and waved at her tauntingly. When she was a little girl, her daddy had worked the coke ovens. He was a good, honest man, and she was proud of him, sure. But he never made much, was never in the position to skimp on such a luxury as a comfortably heated home during those awful stretched out winters. Thanks to Jim's new job as a station agent for the CNO Depot in Augustus Valley, West Virginia, the Sullivans had more than enough coal for their furnace. It was mid January now, and she almost worked up a sweat casually crossing into the den, tracing a finger along the mortar between the bricks. No. These walls would never permit the brutal winter draft she had known in her childhood. Not if she had anything to say about it. And of course, if Jim held his new job, which he would. She missed her parents, but she didn't miss those meager years in the coal camps. In Anna's opinion, there was never a better or more hopeful time to live in Augustus Valley than now, in 1927. In her own lifetime, She had seen the place grow to become the second largest city in the whole country. The greatest and biggest coal mining companies all had offices here. Her husband had a respectable and well-paying job. William would get the childhood she always wanted. And she now had the life her mother had sadly missed out on. Life stretched out before her, bright as the electric lamps that now lit the home. Electricity. What a time to live. As the short daylight crept away, she kissed William's plump cheek. Your grandpappy's smiling down on us, she whispered into his ear. Ain't nothing too good for you, my little diamond boy. Nothing too good for the either of us. Charlie Kessinger sawed his fiddle over the W.O.B.U. Charleston studio. And also in Anna's den, thanks to that magical wooden box from A.H. Greben Company. Anna hummed and stamped her foot and spun around with William to Sally Ann Johnson. Soon, she must prepare supper, a warm, full meal that the three of them would enjoy in this beautiful home, provided to them by the C.N.O. But there was yet time for some dancing. As she and William twirled, she caught a glimpse of the snow as it fell outside. Once, she had feared the snow and hated it. She wasn't afraid anymore. Ouch! Her foot nicked something sharp on the floor. She hopped over to the wall and steadied herself against it, holding William tight to her breast. Her sock was torn, and a tiny red bead grew on her pinky toe. Darn it! Then despite the cut sting, she laughed. She would darn the sock later this evening after the dishes were done, and William in bed. And she and Jim settled down in their chairs to listen to the radio. Or she could throw the sock away. Buy a new pair. Choices. What a time to live. The scratch wasn't serious, but she should find a rag to clean the bit of blood before it got onto the nice polished wood. Toes upturned, she shuffled to the kitchen, scanning the floor for an exposed nail on her way. She saw nothing. The next day, she found it. A small protrusion a few feet from the corner of the den. Her broom had caught it as she swept, or she might have overlooked it. She squatted down to expect the offending curiosity further. From its soft white color, it was apparent that this was neither a nail nor even a wood splinter. It pointed straight up from the brown flooring less than a quarter inch in height. She brushed a finger over its slightly rounded tip. It was not razor sharp, but it was hard. And she was sure that this is what had cut her toe. Anna couldn't make heads or tails of the thing, Her best guess was that Jim's shoes had tracked in this piece of white rock, perhaps limestone. There was plenty of that around these parts, right? And his weight had pressed it into the floor. But it didn't appear to have been pushed into any cracks. Instead, it was directly at the center of the narrow walnut plank, as if it had, well, grown there somehow. She tried to loosen it with her fingers, but it wouldn't give. There must have been a tiny knot that had fallen out, she figured. Just the right size so that when the pebble in Jim's shoe had lined up with it just right, an amazing chance. But she had seen stranger things. It fit snugly into the hole as if it had become one with the wood. She had turned off the radio in order not to disturb William's nap, and now the quietness of the house felt to her like a secret kept between it and this strange white pebble. Outside, a locomotive chugged steam, lulling her into a temporary trance. A cold sweat broke out on her neck. She shuddered and came back to herself. Maybe there is such a thing as too much coal in the furnace. William started crying. She rushed to him. Jim was late. Anna and William ate without him. Your daddy's a hard-working man, she whispered to the boy as she rocked him. He works long so you can have a nice warm house and a radio. And electric lights she laid him in his crib and curled up in her own bed the bed seemed softer than usual probably because she was so tired she woke again when she heard jim's model t pull up to the house he liked to drive to the station even though it was just across the street he liked to drive everywhere and anna liked him too also she wanted folks to see that he had an automobile Even if plenty of other folks had one these days, Jim Sullivan was not the kind of man who couldn't own an automobile. But tonight, she wasn't thinking of Jim's automobile. Jim undressed and lay down next to her without speaking. He thinks I'm still asleep. Jim? She finally said softly, so as not to wake the baby. Yeah? You were late for dinner. I told you I was gonna be late, didn't I? No. Sure I did. I'm in charge of the depot now, remember? I gotta stay around sometimes. Ain't that what your assistant station agent's for? It's part of the job, all right? She didn't feel like arguing, so she held her peace. Besides, maybe he had told her and she'd forgotten. You track some rocks in, I had trouble cleaning up today. Couldn't be. I always take my shoes off inside, you know that. Maybe you forgot. I found a sharp little pebble stuck in the floor. Jim paused and then, well, maybe it was you. She sighed. Maybe so. She rolled over and sunk into the squishy mattress. At the end of the week, she found another one of the stones. This one embedded in the kitchen's nice linoleum. Her brow furrowed. Not the linoleum. She went outside and dug up a good-sized rock from the yard, then marched back into the kitchen and knelt down. Careful not to wake the baby. She first tapped hesitantly, on the sharp nub with the rock. Not surprisingly, it didn't dislodge. This job wanted some elbow grease. She pursed her lips and then knocked it again with full force. On the third try, she heard it crack. She set the large rock aside, anxious to see if she had ruined the linoleum further in her efforts to fix it. The linoleum was unscathed, unlike the little white thing, which she had chipped in two. She picked up the top half of the white stone and held it close to her face with fingers still black with the dirt from outside. A red liquid dripped from the fragment, and she dropped it with a short scream. William began to cry from his crib. Mama's a comin!" Springing up to the sink, she hastily rinsed the dirt and red stuff from her hands and then ran to calm the boy. It's all right, little diamond. Ain't nothing the matter with mommy. She's just trying to fix your daddy's mess. There, there. uh A-shh. She swung him in her arms and he quieted. She knew she couldn't lay him down again until he was fully asleep so she carried him to the kitchen and squatted with him on her shoulder for another look at the thing on the floor. With her one free hand, she picked up the loose white chip and threw it into the trash as quick as she could. Then, grimacing, she took the rock and bashed what remained in the floor. William screamed at the jarring sound in motion. I'll put a sock in it already, Will, she cried as she ground the little nub flat. Her stomach turned at the red liquid that seeped up from where the thing had been. She pressed the spot with a dish rag and bounced her crying baby in her arm until they both finally went dry. There, there, she said. That's a good boy. Mama sorry for the shoutin'. She thought something was wrong with the house. But it weren't nothing to fret over. This is a nice house and it's all fixed now. She threw the red-spotted rag into the trash and carried William away from the kitchen, where neither of them had to dwell on the disturbing thing. Her gut had risen to her throat, and she sweated to keep lunch down. She turned on the radio and paced the den, though William had already calmed down and was near asleep. She felt a prick underfoot. It was that other stuck pebble, the first one. Perhaps it would be better to leave this one alone, after all that. What that red stuff could have been, she didn't have any idea, and she didn't want to think of it anymore. She grit her teeth, forced it from her mind. On her way to William's crib, it occurred to her that her monthly trouble had not yet come. She didn't want to think of that either. Jim wasn't late for dinner that evening, though after everything, Anna almost wished he was. How was work, Jim? Same. I'm so proud of you, she said. Thanks, honey. He paused and smiled at her warmly. I'm proud of you, too. Their forks clicked on their plates. William squealed uncomfortably. You don't think, she said. You don't think you'll ever, you know. What's that, dear? I, I guess it's silly. I just had a hard day. And it got me to thinking. And I got afraid that you might not always have this job with the CNO. and And what would happen to us then? Jim paused and smiled again, put his hand on her arm. Don't fret yourself, none. So long as there's coal in this hauler, the railroad will be shipping it, and I'll still have a job. Most folks say the coal here won't run out for at least a hundred years, maybe two. Oh. She should have felt better at hearing this, but for some reason she couldn't shake her melancholy. That's good, then. By the way, Anna, I'll be late again for the next few nights. Sure, okay. A few more white pebbles showed up around the house over the next week. She didn't dare try to remove them now not after what happened last time. That was too strange to think of. It annoyed Anna that Jim's carelessness was ruining the beautiful floor, but she was too tired to hold on to resentment. She didn't want to waste what little time they had together in arguments. He was so busy at the depot these days. Also, something else lay heavy on her mind. She turned in her sheets. The bed was too warm, and she was sweaty though it was a cold night and dry snow flew in the wind. That furnace was incredible. Jim, she whispered. He grunted in reply. I I can't sleep. Sorry, honey. I don't know what to tell you. I know there's nothing you can do. I just wanted to say it. I reckon I'm lonely. Jim leaned up on one elbow well, I-, I could talk if you won't. Anna opened her mouth then shut it. The wind swirled around the house's exterior making a hungry sound. I think I'm pregnant. The wind died down and there was silence. Anna's heart and breath waited for Jim's word. Wow, uh, that's a, I mean, <clears throat> we'll take you down to see Dr. Lillian make sure. Anna, this is wonderful. You really think so? Sure I do, don't you? Yes, I just worry sometimes. Jim held her and talked low into her ear. Ain't nothing to worry for, honey. The CNO pays me better than most. Our kids will have a good life and won't never have to know about living in no tar paper shack like we did. It sure is a nice life we got, Anna said. But Sometimes I wish you was around more, the baby. And for me. I wouldn't be around no more than now if I were a minor. And in this job, I ain't risking my life every day. I know. William started crying. Anna got up from the bed to comfort and feed him. Relieved for a reason to leave the sticky sheets. Nursing the baby in the den, she soon heard Jim's snores through the wall. In the lamp's soft yellow incandescence, Anna's eyes picked out a new white spot on the floor. She turned her chair away from it. But just off from where the bricks met in the corner near the ceiling, where no boot could have ever been, another white thorn jutted from the wall. She shifted her gaze down to William sucking at her breast until he finished. Ouch, she cried. William had grown his first tooth, and it had caught on her nipple as she pulled him away. She softly ran her finger over it and looked at it in the dim light. Nausea stirred in her. She could no longer avert her eyes from those tiny white growths like stalactites and stalagmites all over the floor and ceiling and walls. She measured her footsteps carefully around them in order not to puncture the soles of her feet. Ask for a transfer, she blurted out over a Sunday lunch. Jim looked at her with alarm as he swallowed his food. "Eh, Sorry, sorry, what? Surely the railroad has other depots and other places, right? What? Don't you like it here? How could she say it? Incredibly, Jim had made no sign of noticing what was happening to the house, though she couldn't imagine how that could be. I reckon men just don't notice some things. I don't understand, Jim said. You have to help me understand. William laughed. Anna couldn't look at him, couldn't stomach the sight of his mouth, with those new pearly stubs rising out of his pink gums. Don't you see them? He frowned. See what? The teeth. She almost said it out loud, but she saw that he was already suspicious enough of her sanity. She leaned her face into her hands and cried. She made no more mention of them for fear of Jim calling the doctor. She had William to take care of, and another on the way. She could not be sent away to the asylum in Weston. She wasn't sure what exactly they did up there, but she knew that there were plenty of women like herself called hysterical and hidden away in that vault. She would not have her children grow up motherless. The house was hot and smelled rotten, and those jaggedy ivory things were everywhere and growing. She couldn't avoid seeing them now, so she resigned herself to them as best she could. The upside to her surrender was that she could again face her son, whom she had always cared for, but whose toothy smile she couldn't stand for a while. She rocked him dutifully. Good William, my little diamond boy, she said. You must be a good big brother to your little sister. I'll need plenty of help. Of course, she didn't know it's sex, but she hoped for a girl. William gurgled and squealed, his open mouth bearing tiny white incisors. Her soles toughened, and she became able to walk without paying much mind to where she stepped. She went about polishing them all. For if she had to live with them, they might as well look nice. She asked Jim once more about moving. This time she did it calmly, with a practice indifference. Why? Jim said. He frowned, not suspicious this time, but looking hurt. I thought you liked it here. Only other jobs I could get would be worse and pay less with longer hours. You know that. You're right, she said. I know you do your best by me. I'm sorry. I ain't ungrateful, really. I can get used to it, she thought. My children are safe and the coal trains will keep Jim with work for many a year. Later, he went to bed, and she followed. She reached toward the wall and ran a finger across the teeth. The feeling made her shiver, despite the stuffy atmosphere. She set William in his crib, and then lay next to Jim on the mattress. Squishy, warm, and moist, like a tongue.
2: That was Timothy G. Huguenin's The Station Agent's Wife, 1927, as read by Danielle Hewitt. Danielle is recording out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, where the people can be just as scary as any horror story. When she isn't recording, she tends to the two small children living in her house. They just won't stop screaming at night. Danielle is a graphic designer by trade, Spending most nights photoshopping horror scenes out of your nightmares. Thank you, Danielle. Well, children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lesle Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify. Where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review you'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we huddle close round the campfire for more Tales to Terrify.